Welcome to the My Essential Birth Podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Stephanie. And we're professional doulas, childbirth educators, and the creators of My Essential Birth, the holistic, empowering online childbirth education course helping mothers everywhere confidently achieve their best birth. So join us each week as we share tips and advice for all things pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be the first to get new content. And head over to www.myessentialbirth.com for more information about our birth course and to join a community of mamas just like you. All right, everyone, welcome. You are in for a treat today because we have a very special guest, Dr. Nathan Fox. He's a maternal fetal medicine high-risk specialist. And Nate, we are so happy to have you here. This is great. I'm uh, very happy we worked out the technical challenges amongst the three of us. <laughs> of which there were many, but we got it sorted out. Um, Nate, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you've got four kids. There's a set of twins in there, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm originally from Chicago and I came out to New York for undergraduate for college. I met my wife who's uh, from New Jersey. So she's a native and we got married on the young side, had four kids. Uh, the first two were twins, uh, boy, girl, and then two more girls. And my kids are growing up fast. My twins are turning 21 next week. And my youngest is 14 and the one in the middle is 17. We live in New Jersey. And uh, yeah, and I'm a doctor, an OB and MFM practicing in New York City. Woohoo! <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like we might be contacting you just for like parental advice coming up soon <laughs> as we hit the teenage yeah. years with our kids. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's I say it. The, the main difference is there's less you have to do, but you have to continuously give them money. So it's like you're paying them <laughs> to do things. Fair enough. <laughs> OK, yeah. so tell us then, what was it? How did you end up getting involved in birth work? What did that look like for your education? So, you know, I went to medical school uh, just thinking I'd be a doctor, didn't really know what kind of doctor I'd be, which is pretty typical for people going to medical school. And, you know, in the first couple of years, you do what's called your preclinical years, which is, you know, a lot of science like biology and physiology and anatomy and all those things. And then when you start doing your clinical rotations, the first thing I did was actually OBGYN and I fell in love with it. It's just awesome. It's an amazing field. Um, little secret, I happen to like almost everything I did in my clinical rotations, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, it's usually like that. People just like it or they don't like it for medical school. And But OB was, it's an interesting field because it has a really nice combination of a surgical type of medicine. You know, you operate, you do things with your hands. It has the medical type of medicine where you sort of think about problems and try to, you know, solve them medically. It also has um, a mental health component. There's a lot of, you know, talking and counseling and getting to know people and their emotions and what they're thinking. Um, and it's also a great place if you like, great field if you like moving from place to place. So, you know, one day I'm on the labor floor, one day I'm in the office, one day I'm an ultrasound. You get to do a lot of things. And the the science of it is really interesting. The whole concept of pregnancy and birth is fascinating. And so I chose to do that. And I trained in obstetrics and gynecology. Also, I did this in New York. And then afterwards, I decided to do uh, extra training, what we call subspecialty training in maternal fetal medicine, which is the fancy term for high-risk obstetrics. And that's another three years after your OBGYN training. And that's what I do now. And so what can I ask what made you move that direction? Like what about the high risk was like, I need to be in that specialty? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, during the OBGYN residency, you spend about half of your time doing obstetrics. So pregnancy related work that could be, you know, prenatal care, deliveries, whatever, and about half doing gynecology. Um, I liked both, but I really enjoyed the obstetric side more. And I felt that the sort of the academic pursuits, the science, like sort of where the research was in that was more um, exciting to me at that time. And so I really wanted to pursue that aspect of it. And I really felt that, you know, if I was going to spend more of my time in pregnancy, I wanted to be as much of an expert, so to speak, as possible in as many facets of pregnancy as I could. So for example, there's a lot of overlap between what 
obstetricians and high-risk obstetricians do, but there are some things that when you're doing the high-risk training and the high-risk practice that you can do things and take care of patients in certain situations that you can't really do when you're just, not just, but when you're an OBGYN. And so I wanted to have that capability. And so I did it. was I'm very, very happy. And I'm, I, I love what I do. I have never regretted it for a minute, literally. Well, and I loved when you and I spoke before we even agreed to do podcasting. I loved your birth philosophy. I loved that you um, understood that this is more than just get a baby out and that's the end of it. You understand that there's you know, there's a woman behind this experience and there's emotions involved in that. And so what is your overall birth philosophy? Because I felt like it was really unique and I, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I, I hope I'm not the first person to realize that there's a woman involved in the birthing process. That would be, uh... <laughs> we hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't really, I don't view it as a philosophy. Like I don't, I don't go and, you know, quote my philosophy to people. I just, I think that I've always felt that it's such an amazing um, experience to go through. And, you know, so many people go through it, obviously, you know, every child who's been born, you know, the mother's gone through some sort of experience with this, but it's, it's on the one hand, miraculous. The fact that it works out the way it does most of the time is really just tremendous. And there's so much that's interesting and there's so much that we don't understand. But on top of that, it's so human. It really gets to the core of who we are as people. And, you know, it touches on, you know, meaning of life. I mean, all these really deep concepts come about for so many people during their pregnancy and during birth. And the fact that I get to participate in that, it's just amazing. I mean, you develop the closest relationships with people when you're a part of their uh, very intense emotional experiences. Fortunately, most of those are positive emotional experiences. Unfortunately, in my line of work, it doesn't always work out that way. There are times when we're seeing people going through the greatest horrors of their life. Um, but even in those situations, to be a part of it and to help them is just so powerful and it's so meaningful. And, it, you know, it's it's hard to forget that. And I'm I'm continuously amazed and uh, in wonder over what goes on with every pregnancy and every birth. Yeah, it's it's a lot more than just getting a baby out healthy for a woman, right? There's it's a whole journey, like you said, and whole range of emotions. And you know, one of the things we've talked about before is, um, you know, a doctor and OB he'll deliver thousands of babies over the course of his career. But for that birth, for that woman, that's going to stick with her for a lifetime. And and I was, I'm so grateful to hear of uh, doctors, providers who recognize the significant experience that it is for each woman individually. So, yeah. And as, as we've talked about before too, and for our listeners, one of the best things about obstetricians, um, and particularly with what you just said, I feel like I just want to put you up high here for a sec because obstetricians, oh <laughs> no, you're incredible at what you do. And just to hear your journey and the joy that you find in it, and it's interesting to you and you like to be a part of it and it lights you up and you're never bored. And that's so important to realize on that back end. You know, so often I think we find ourselves in a situation where we feel like we're put up um, in one space or another against a provider. And that's really not the case. That's not the conversation we want to have. This is somebody that's part of your birth team. This is somebody that's going to be part of that memory for the rest of your life. And so to realize that they're a person and they they went through this process and they enjoy what they do and they're very skilled at it, I think brings us back to that being human and allows that experience to unfold naturally and lovely. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I mean, listen, it's it's really hard to be an obstetrician um, because it's taxing. There's a lot of, a lot of training is, you know, for most fields in medicine and the work is difficult because from a physical perspective, because a lot of it involves being up late at night and, you know, not sleeping and, you know, having to work through again, very, sometimes very, very happy, but also very challenging situations. And the people who go into our field and don't want to be doing the deliveries anymore, they don't do it anymore. They either switch and just do full-time gynecology or a lot of people in my field, when they when they do the extra training for high risk, 
They say, I'm doing this so that I don't have to do deliveries anymore because there are many people in my field who sort of pivot to doing just consultations and ultrasounds and, you know, procedures, and that's fine. So if if you have a, a doctor or a midwife who's the person who's up at three in the morning with you and pushing and, you know, trying to help you in this, they probably really love what they do and they're excited about it. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's something I would generally give them the benefit of the doubt that because they could get out of that field if they wanted to. That's a great point. And we can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. So what does a high risk doctor do specifically? Meaning like, what do you see most commonly? What kind of women are you working with? What sort of a diagnosis do you, do they come in with most often? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think there is a lot of, um, variation, at least in the U.S., of what people in my specialty do for maternal fetal medicine. But at the core of it, it's generally um, two things. Number one, we take care of women with quote-unquote high-risk pregnancies. So what does that mean to have a high-risk pregnancy? So it generally means either uh, a woman who has herself uh, medical conditions and then becomes pregnant. So let's say someone who has diabetes, someone who has lupus, someone with high blood pressure, someone who has cancer, and then becomes pregnant. So that would be one way uh, someone could be at a higher risk. The second is she herself doesn't have any medical problems, but she has a complex pregnancy, like she has twins or she has triplets or she has bleeding or there's a problem with her uterus or something like that. And then there's always a combination of those, including someone who had a complicated pregnancy in the past, like she delivered preterm or she had a very difficult cesarean or something. And so that's the first thing we do is we take care of women with more complicated pregnancies for some reason. The other aspect of what we do and what we train in um, is the fetal side of it. So we train in doing the ultrasounds for women when they're pregnant. Again, this is for low-risk women, for all women. When they come and get an ultrasound, frequently the person performing and reading the ultrasound is going to be one of us. Or if they do a procedure like an amniocentesis or a CVS, that's going to be one of us. And so one of the nice things about what I do is I get to take care of and interact with quote-unquote high-risk uh, pregnancies, but also much of my day is with quote unquote low risk, very uncomplicated pregnancies who are coming uh, for an assessment of their fetus, either routinely or because there's some concern. And it's a really nice range of who we get to see. Okay. Do you have any protocols with women that come to you late in pregnancy? So we're talking like latter end of the third trimester. Um, and is there anything that you do to make them more comfortable? And this might seem like a weird question, but I know a lot of the women that take our birth course or follow us are looking for a more unmedicated, less intervention process, which I would assume most women when they come to you, that's kind of the case. But many of them come from midwifery free care, which mm -hmm. tends to be a little more one-on-one, -on -one, um, more time spent. They plan to have the provider with them during the majority of the labor. There's just some different things that way. So is there anything special or um, or what does that look like when someone comes to you from that kind of care? It it depends why they're coming, I would say. There, there are two reasons people would come to our care late in pregnancy. The first is just something logistical. Let's say they moved from one town to another or for whatever reason they had, you know, they didn't want to stay with their previous provider and they want to switch or they want to deliver to a certain hospital, let's say. And that's really just, they're switching to our practice. And in those situations, generally we try to make sure that it's a good fit even before they come. Um, you know, sometimes we'll, you know, we'll have our staff ask them, you know, why and get some information and maybe talk to them on the phone because we don't want a situation where a woman's coming to our practice and, thinks it's going to be a certain way, but it ends up being another way. And then, you know, she's, you know, displeased or whatever it might be. Um, but the situations where someone is transferring because their pregnancy got more complicated. So for example, someone, you know, she's, she's young, she's healthy, she's having an uncomplicated pregnancy. And then suddenly in the end, you know, towards the end of pregnancy, her blood pressure is going up. The, the baby's measuring small. She has diabetes. All these things are happening. And her provider says, listen, um, I don't feel that I can take care of you anymore because I think you need a higher level of care, either 
you know, you're switching from delivering at a birth center and we need you to go to a hospital with a NICU, or I need you to have a, a physician instead of a midwife or whatever it might be. And they come to us. And in those situations, obviously we're, we're, we're not going to say no, like we're not going to turn someone away. They need to come to us. I would say most of the time, it's not that complicated because the people coming to us for those reasons realize that, you know, the situation has changed. And sometimes some of the things that they that they wanted or thought was uh, a possibility for them might not be safe anymore for either them or the baby. But we talk about it. We lay everything out at the first visit. So if someone's coming to me and she's towards the end of pregnancy and we're discussing, you know, why she's switching. Here's our plan. Here's what I think we should do. Here's, you know, we, we're talking about it and we'll always go over what does that mean for your birth in terms of do we have to deliver you early? Do we have to induce your labor? Do we need to do a cesarean? Do we need to, you know, give you medications? Are there, you know, things we need to do that maybe differ from what she was expecting and then try to lay that out sort of what are the, where's the options? Where are the, you know, what are the parameters? What's the wiggle room? And try to make sure that she's as comfortable as possible. Uh, ultimately, you know, pretty much everyone, their number one goal is that they and the baby are healthy and they realize that. And I think as long as the conversations are honest and open, everyone comes into the birth with the correct expectations. And I think that everyone generally is very satisfied ultimately. Hopefully it's the exact same way they wanted it. And if it isn't, whatever differences there are, they understand why and what is the reasoning and they're comfortable with that. And it's generally worked out very, very well. I love that. I love that it's a conversational approach. And this is what I think part of the power is in having a birth plan. It's it's less about the plan. It's more about getting educated about what your options are and what your priorities for birth are so that if you find yourself in a situation where you're being referred to someone for a higher level of care, you can say, look, this is what I initially envisioned. These were my top priorities. What's still possible, you know, on here? Yeah. What may I need to compromise on? How can we make this happen? And it's it's a work together to make it happen kind of a thing. Yeah. And and I think it's two way. I think that, you know, the 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 woman who's coming, you know, the pregnant woman who's coming to this conversation has to again be open and honest about what she prefers what she was looking for, what her hopes are, what her preferences are, what her vision was. Uh, and she also has to be open to the possibility that these things aren't the the best option for her and the baby yeah. and to just come with an open mind. But obviously, I think the doctor has to have that same perspective. The doctor has to be open and honest about what he and she thinks is appropriate and safe and ex be able to explain why this is the safe option, you know, not just say, because I said so, like, that's not a really good answer. And to explain, you know, what, what is the reason I feel this needs to be done and where is my leeway and where it isn't. And in the same regard, have an open mind to the possibility that maybe we can do it slightly different from how we normally do it, as long as it still falls within what we consider to be appropriate and safe. And I think if everyone is both willing to not compromise, but just willing to be flexible and at the same time be willing to be open about what they what they truly want, then the conversations tend to go very well. I think when people don't discuss this and they keep it to themselves, they usually leave these conversations very bitter because they say, oh, the doctor said I had to do A, B, and C and I didn't have a chance to talk. Well, maybe the doctor didn't give you a chance and that's not good. Or maybe you didn't speak up and the doctor doesn't know and that's not good either. And so I think everyone has to really, you know, state what they're thinking. Yeah, it's definitely a two-way street that requires flexibility and a willingness to accept help uh, on both ends, right? Or accept a different point of view. Um, and I love that because I feel like that's such a chill approach. And one of the things you said was that high-risk doctors are actually more chill. Can you explain that for our <laughs> listeners, what you mean behind that? Because I loved it. Right. So not all high-risk doctors, because some of us are absolutely crazy, but I think that, um, <laughs> you know, I think what ends up happening is a lot of um, people fear the unknown. And so if you, if a woman has a, a condition or a situation or a complication that you, you only see once or twice in your career, which is okay. I mean, some things are rare. It's going to be like 
very, very scary and you're going to be sort of overly um, conservative, so to speak. Or if you only take care of women who have no issues, you focus on like these little details. But if you're dealing with like these crazy situations where someone's, you know, got quadruplets and she's got high blood pressure and you're like, you're like, ah, this is nothing, you know, it's nothing compared to what can really be a problem. (laughs) It's, I think it just, you get perspective on sort of what can actually happen and you don't, you try not to hyper-focus on a lot of these little details that people seem to get bogged down with. Uh, And so I, you know, I I find that when I'm talking to them and they're always asking me, can I do this? Can I do this? I'm like, yeah, it's totally fine. They're like, but someone said I couldn't. I said, well, you know, why? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's, I'm, 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 I'm known as the guy who lets you, you know, I'm very permissive. You know, you want to, you want to be in New York city. You want to, you want to have sushi? Come to me. You'll have sushi. (laughs) You want to go to Starbucks? We'll take you to Starbucks. You want to dye your hair? Dye it green. Like I'm all over it. I love it. Okay. I feel like that adds like perfectly flows into our next question, which is how do we find somebody like you if we are women looking for a provider? What does that look like? We can't clone you yet, but you know, right. So in the meantime, how can we find like here in Utah or any other states? What are your recommendations for finding a provider you mesh with well? Right. Well, I happen to know good people in Utah. So offline, I'm happy to tell you who they are. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have, uh, you know, our MFM network, we're very, uh, you know, we all know each other, but, um, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the great challenges of medicine. And, you know, it's one of the things I I talk about all the time with, with patients, with family, with friends, you know, my podcast, how can anyone know if their doctor is any good? It's really difficult. And it's something I've always thought about. Is there a way to like make some sort of mechanism where, where you can do this because, you know, online ratings are, are not helpful. Um, and when, even if you meet the doctor, it's, it's, it's hard because what do you, what can you know about someone? All right. You can know if their office is clean. Okay, fine. You can know if they run on time, right? That's helpful. Good to know. You can right. know if the people, including the doctor are kind. Do they look you in the eye? Do they smile? Are they pleasant? Okay, that's all helpful, but they may be terrible at what they do. You would have no idea. So, okay, you look at the diplomas on the wall. That seems like an impressive place, but I can tell you there's very little correlation between how impressive the name of the institution is on the wall and how good the doctor is. Uh, There's almost never a correlation there. And so you really have to get a little bit deeper. And it's hard to know if they're good at decision-making or not. Some of that is just... You know, you hope by like local reputation and this, that they're, you know, generally competent. But I think some of the important things are, how are they as a communicator? If a doctor, and this is true for anything, it's not just doctors, but that's what we're talking about now. Is this someone who's listening to you? Do you feel like he or she's actually listening and hearing you? And are they trying to address your questions? Are they giving you opportunity to ask questions? Do they explain things in a way that makes sense? Do they have some humility that they don't know everything in the world and they're willing to say, I don't know, let me look into that. Let me get back to you. Or if you're saying, maybe I'll ask another doctor, do they get offended by that? Or do they say, are they open to, yeah, get another opinion. Let's see what he or she says and we'll readdress it. And I think these are sort of basic human qualities. And I think that if you find someone who has that and you're like, I really, I think this person is someone I can trust, that's probably the golden ticket. For me, if I'm looking for a doctor, I sort of assume that they're relatively bright and they are fairly well-trained and they can do the procedures they say they can do. But it's really more so, do I trust that person? You know, if I have a problem and I ask him or her, like, what do you think I should do? And they give me an opinion, do I trust that they have my best interest in, in mind? Do they know me? Do they have they thought about it? And that's a lot of that is in your gut. Um, but some of the things I mentioned before would be, you know, red flags uh, that they're not trustworthy for you. And it could be that different people need different things from their doctor, obviously. Some people want uh, somebody who's more talkative. Somebody, Some people want someone who just you know, quickly and makes a decision and moves on. And, you know, People look for different things, but make sure it's a good match for you and who you would trust. I think you hit the nail on the head, and that's kind of what we try to run home as well with our listeners and our moms within the course. Okay, so last time um, when we did the podcast with you on, on mm-hmm. your podcast and did that interview, and we'll link to that in the show notes, you guys will get to hear both of these interviews, which mm-hmm. were really fun to do. In our last interview, we talked about 
kind of red flags for providers. And we were talking about, oh, uh oh, like, what does that look like? And I think something just like you talked about, some of that is intuition. Some of that comes from the gut. You meet this person, you're either on the same wavelength or you're not. And we find that as doulas. I think a lot of it's personality when it comes down to who's going to be in your birth space. Um, the other side of that is what do those red flags look like? So when we're talking to our moms, um, something that we have come up against, or I even personally with a provider has been, oh, I, I have some questions about what this birth is going to be like. I really want to go unmedicated. So I want to do X, Y, Z. Um, and the communication back is something like, well, we don't really have that conversation until about 36, 37 weeks. That's a red flag for me. Or I think, um, I think I would like to, like, I obviously want to avoid a cesarean, but I really want to go unmedicated specifically and to have a provider come back and say, well, it's, it's really painful. It's likely you're probably, I even let my, my people get their epidurals early. And if I'm being honest, short women, tend to have cesarean births anyways. That's a red flag. Like there's, but if you're not having the communication, if you're not having that conversation, and these are real conversations that have really happened, then I, I feel like you're doing a disservice to yourself and, and to that relationship with the provider. Cause obviously you're just on different wavelengths. You have different views of how this should go. And one isn't necessarily right or wrong, but it's definitely preference. And if you don't have that similar preference, it's, you're not going to feel satisfied at the end. And I think that's kind of what you touched on. Yeah. And I think another thing is people focus a lot on sort of the, the qualities of the doctor that I would say are not as relevant. So a lot of people focus on is the doctor um, more senior or more junior and the thought that maybe being more senior is better. And maybe in some instances it is, and maybe in some instances it's not. Is the provider a male or a female? Is the doctor in a small group or a larger group? Is the doctor, you know, well-dressed or not well-dressed? And I, I think, all right, like, whatever, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. But the most important thing is, is honestly, when that person's talking to you, do you connect with that person? Do you, and you feel it, you can know it. I mean, it's like when you meet someone yes. on a, you meet someone at, you know, at a party, you talk to them, you know, I like this person. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah. it's not, you know, it's visceral. It's nothing you can like even put down on paper necessarily. And again, it's different for different people. So the, the, the conversation you were describing about the doctor who's, you know, not so into the unmedicated births and thinks that everyone who's short is going to end up with a cesarean. That's a not a good match for someone who is short and wants an unmedicated birth, right? But if someone is maybe Paul and is like, my God, I would never do this without an epidural. And those things don't matter to her in that sense. Maybe everything else about that doctor is perfect for her. And so it really has to be individualized that one doctor who's going to be great for one person might not be great for another person and vice versa. And so you really, you know, that's why taking advice from friends, it, it's beneficial because you might learn facts about that person, what his or her personality is like, what their office like, this or that. But ultimately, you're not going to know if you're going to connect with that doctor until you just meet with him or her and see what they're like. And it doesn't take too long to figure these things out, generally, is, is my opinion. So let's say you find someone, a provider, you know, like, and trust, you feel comfortable with them. How would you recommend a mom communicates or maybe a provider communicates when you both want something different. Um, so for example, I had a provider who was, he was pretty chill um, and I didn't want to have to labor with an IV. And, um, you know, in the past I'd had a HEPLOC and so it wasn't connected to anything and it starts to get kind of irritating after hours when it's not been flushed or whatever. And we both kind of came from different places. Do you have some tips that you can give our listeners on how to communicate in a way that's productive and mutually respectful when you want something different? Yeah, I think that the, and this is based on a lot of these conversations going very well and a lot of these conversations going very poorly, um, either because I didn't handle it right or maybe the patient didn't handle it right. And I would say that the first thing is have the conversations as early as possible, particularly if they're very important to you. Because if you find out that something is not an option, you want to know what you can do about it, right? So if someone asks me, you know, two days before their due date that they need something, and I'm like, it can't be done. Like, forget about what I want, but it's just it's not logistically possible. Well, what are you going to do about that? I mean, you're two days before your due date. Like, you're sort of, you're stuck. <laughs> so if there's something that's very important Try to talk about it early, number one. Number two, if there seems to be um, 
resistance to the things that you want, try to be specific. Like, is it because it's just not possible? Like this isn't available at your hospital or there's a hospital policy that the doctor has no control over. Like, so that happens. Sometimes people ask me for certain things and I'm like, listen, I'm perfectly fine with it, but the hospital doesn't allow it. And I can't like, it's not up to me. I'm, you know, I'm a guest in their house. I can't break their rules. And so you have to decide, is this a deal breaker for you or not? And if it is, we have to find you somewhere else because I can't do that. Or is it, yeah, it's allowed, but I, the doctor, am not comfortable with it. And then that's a different situation. And to try to find out then why is the doctor uncomfortable with it because they think it's dangerous or because it's just out of their wheelhouse? And if so, how far? And again, is it a deal breaker? Like you have to sort of figure these things out uh, just to get the information. And the other thing is I would always approach these very matter of fact, just business, right? Meaning it's not, uh, it's not a personal affront to who the doctor is or who the, you know, the woman is. It's not a judgment of anyone's character. It's just, you know, it, it's just people stating what they're comfortable with and trying to come to some resolution there. And when people get and both ends, the doctor, the patient gets sort of offended by the idea that someone disagrees with them or feels differently, then it really starts to break down. And so if someone says to me, I want A, B, or C, and, and I say to them, well, A, I can do, B, I'm not sure, let me work on it, and C, it's not an option for me because I don't think it's safe, and here's a story, and I can't compromise, or you know, whatever it is, that's fine. Like that, And if she says, I'm sorry, C's a deal breaker, I'll say, okay, like we have, we have a, a situation where we, it's not going to work. Let's figure out either one of us, either, you know, either you're going to have to go somewhere else or we'll come up with something else. And, but again, it's not a judgment or anger or anything like that. It's just trying to figure out how everyone can get to where they, to a birth that's comfortable for everybody, essentially. And in speaking to your first point there, I love those tips. Obviously, the earlier you can get educated on your options in pregnancy, the better. I know we have women that come to us, you know, after even the 34, 36 week mark. Um, but the earlier you can get that birth education done in your pregnancy, the sooner you can have these conversations with your provider, um, like Nate said. So how involved are you in the birth process, even when you're not physically with the laboring woman? Um, are you talking to nurses, giving recommendations or instructions over the phone in person? I think for a lot of birthing women, that's sort of a mystery <laughs> yes. to us, right? Because you know, the doctor comes kind of in, maybe they'll check on you part of the way through birth, you know, see how things are going. But most of the time they show up right when it's time to catch the baby. What does it look like before yeah. that? <laughs> what, what are we doing? Where are we? Yeah, we're like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's yeah. like when you're growing up and all the teachers went into the teacher's lounge. Like, what goes on in there? You yeah. know, yeah. like, like <laughs> exactly. an open bar or a disco, what happens? There? No, so it, um, it, it depends on the practice type. So there are definitely a lot of hospitals or doctors or offices where what you're describing happens, where basically a woman comes to the labor floor. And the labor nurses or whoever's there sort of taking care of her until literally the baby's coming out. And then this doctor shows up, catches the baby, you know, leaves the room and sends a bill. Uh, that definitely happens a lot. In our practice, we don't do it that way. And most of the doctors in our hospital don't do it that way. Generally, uh, once a woman is admitted in labor, you know, the, a decision is made that she's going to stay in the hospital for labor. Uh, one of us is with her with her essentially the entire time um, in the hospital. Now, we're not in the room with her the entire time. It's not, it just doesn't work like that, but we're there physically. So we are completely involved for the whole labor. I mean, we know everything that's going on. We're watching if she's having the continuous fetal heart rate monitoring. We're watching that remotely. Anytime anything happens, either we know it, the nurse calls us, we come in the room. So we're back and forth in the room, out the room, the entire labor. Um, and that's how we, that's how I do it. That's how my practice does it. So literally every detail is run through us or, you know, in person or over the phone from another room or whatever. Um, but there are situations and that's a good thing to ask your doctor, you know, simple question. When I'm in the hospital labor, are you there or are you in your office or at home? And if, if so, what point do you right. come in and does that matter to me? Right. And for some women, they don't, they don't want the doctor anywhere near them until the baby comes out. They're like, I don't right. want you touching me. Like, you know, stay away until the baby's coming out. And so <laughs> in which case they don't want, they don't want me because I'm there all the time. So it's, 
it just depends on what people are looking for and what they're expecting. But that's a good question to ask. So if a nurse comes in, let's say hypothetically, and she says, your doctor is telling me that you need this, we can assume then that a conversation has occurred between the provider and the nurse. Um, and if it kind of conflicts with maybe prior discussions that you've had with that provider, is it okay then for the woman to go, hang on just a second, can I verify that with him? Like, is that is that kosher uh, to do? It- which kosher to do for the for the nurse to do that the doctor do it or sorry the i guess i asked you a two-part oh, okay. question right so is it safe to assume then that if a nurse comes in and says your doctor says you need this that the two of them have had a conversation about that prior? Uh, i would hope so i mean the nurse is if she's telling you something you would hope that it's truthful um then i would imagine it would be that would be the the, the assumption but there are some things again each hospital is set up a little bit differently but nurses in general, have very finite scope of what they are allowed to do independently. So, and and that is defined by the hospital. They put it in writing. Like a nurse is allowed to, let's say, draw blood, start an IV. They don't have to be supervised by a doctor, things like that. They're allowed to do A, B, C, and D. And in every hospital, it's a little bit different. In some hospitals, the nurses do have the, um, I don't want to say authority, but it's, it's within their scope of practice to do um, exams in labor, you know, or to, you know, certain procedures in labor, let's say. And in some hospitals, they're not given that uh, authority in their scope of practice. So if a nurse comes in and says, we're making a change to your plan, it sort of depends on the circumstance. If it's something that is not in her scope of practice, it would have to be the doctor that um, instructs her to do that. Um, the, the medical term is order, which is a very strange term to use anymore, but, you know, we order a nurse. It's like really weird, but that's the term that they use, the orders. Um, whereas if it could be something like if the nurse says, oh, I'm going to give you oxygen or put you on your side or put the baby back on the monitor, that may be something that she can do without running it by the doctor. And it depends on the circumstance. Uh, so it's hard to say for sure which one of those two it is. Got it. A lot of times we see this when um, a labor has maybe stalled a little bit, needs a little bit of augmentation. Um, I was always curious to know if, you know, starting Pitocin or or something like that, is that something that they make the decision independently? Does the doctor have to check off on that or does it vary from hospital to hospital? Um, I think in general, it it's a doctor's decision about starting Pitocin. I don't, I mean, I don't know places where the nurses can independently decide to start or give any medications, really, unless like emergently, like to save a life or something like that. So in general, but sometimes what happens is when someone gets admitted, there's an order set from the doctor that includes provisions in which she can start Pitocin. So, or he, and the nurse doesn't have to be she. So it. it's it, there are sometimes, again, like, for example, if um, someone is coming, um, a great example is how the Pitocin is dosed, right? So if, if let's say I, 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 you know, I talk to a patient, we're going to give you oxytocin, Pitocin for a certain reason. And then I, I give the nurse instructions and the instructions include how frequently can she increase the dose? For what reason should she increase or decrease it? So it's not like every single time the pump is touched, the doctor has made that decision, but it's within the parameters of what uh, it's pre-specified. And so, but Got the it. decision to start it would not be a nurse's decision uh as far as I know, I don't know places where the nurses do that. Unless, again, nurse midwives are, you know, different from just nurses, obviously. Okay. So will you tell us, do you find that women, and obviously this is going to be a little plug for us, right? And who take a birth course are more prepared. And if yes, in what ways? I would say the answer is yes, if the birth course is a good one. and if So birth, yes, yeah. if they take our birth course, yes. If they take, well, so so I haven't taken your birth course, but after speaking to and reading um, what you write and listening to your podcast, I would say that yes, taking your birth course uh, will make women more informed and definitely in a better position um, to have a successful birth and what they and how they define success. And I think that there are birth courses that are not good and that's the problem. Uh, and so when I uh, am working with a woman and she's gone to a birth course with someone who's really good at what they do and they have good information, they explain it well, it's fantastic because there's so much that people don't know about birth, which is understandable, right? Why would they know about it? And particularly if she does have specific concerns or specific wants or specific um, vision of how her birth should be, the birth course is really a good way 
to find that out and to understand and to figure out what you want to ask for and how to ask for it. And also just to understand what's going to happen. Like, what are the terms you're going to hear? What are the things that happen? What does this mean? What does that mean? It's hard to learn it all on the fly. For some people, they're they're very happy to show up blissfully unaware and just whatever happens, happens. <laughs> they go with the flow. And that's okay. I don't, I don't, I tell people when they're, when I'm taking care of them, I don't give them any homework. They're not required to take a birth <laughs> course. They don't need to read anything. They don't need to do anything. As long as they know where to show up and what phone number to call to get me there, I can deal with it, you know, live. But not everyone feels comfortable with that. Some people, many people really want more information coming into it. They want to understand what's happening to them. They want to be a part of it. They want to make decisions. They want to, you know, be an active participant in the labor. And for those people, they should definitely take a birth course. And I always tell people, you know, for some people getting more information makes them feel really great about this. And other people, it totally, <laughs> free, it totally freaks them out. And right, find, yeah. out, find out which one you are. Because if a, if a birth course is freaking you out, leave. Like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. But for most right. people, that's not the case. Most people, they're happy they went. They're really learning a lot. They feel that they're understanding what's going on, which makes the process more interesting, more exciting, more, um, they feel more connected to it. And I think ultimately on the, at the back end, when they look back on their birth, they're happy they did it. Um, that's how most people are. And so, yes, I, I really, um, I'm in favor of it. So ladies, to recap, that's a doctor telling you that it would be a good thing <laughs> to take our birth course. This is, this is yeah, I'm, it's like the, it's like, on the record like the, to like the toothpaste commercials, four out of five MFMs agree <laughs> that it's, the birth course is a good idea. So, and we don't right, know. Right now it's just one out of one. So I and think we, and we don't know the <laughs> Yeah, but the other thing is, I, I I'd say it's not it's not just the birth course because I think it's great. I think because so everyone you know gets information differently. I think listening to your podcast is also fantastic. Some people oh, don't totally. want to, yeah, yeah. Some people don't want to go right. to course, and then, you know whatever you know, or they can't they want to do it, but they can't convince their partner to do it. Okay, whatever. Like these things happen, but the podcast is great information, and I think finding information that is reliable and that is digestible is really difficult. It's that same thing about finding a doctor. It's hard. And if you can find a source that works for you and that is good, again, that is golden. That is amazing. And it's going to be so helpful. And that's why I think your podcast is great. It's literally the single reason why I did our podcast. My podcast uh, is for that exact reason. It's not my job. I don't get paid for it or anything like that. It's just, I think that there needs to be good information um, for women about their health, about their pregnancy, about their birth. And I just couldn't find it in a lot of places. I said, screw it. We're going to do it ourselves. And that's it. Well, we're both equally passionate about getting great information into women's hands. And so because of that, we're going to field a couple questions. Have you field a couple questions from our uh, podcast listeners and our Instagram followers. And so we picked the two questions that we feel um, Steph and I wanted to know the answers to and hear what you had to say about it as well. All right, let's so do it. Lightning the... round. <laughs> so one of the questions that we got had to do with consent um, and what that should look like from provider to patient. Um, some of this comes from women who have traumatic experience, whether that's sexual, um, like poor experience previously or just traumatic experience with providers or in general. However, we find that sometimes in a situation with a provider, particularly during labor, instead of saying, I, I think we should do this, are you okay with? We're getting a lot of the, I'm gonna start this or I'm gonna do this and it just happens. Um, and along with that, similar to, and I think we talked about this earlier, or maybe I listened to it on your podcast earlier, that's what it was, but episiotomy, you know, and this is like something that maybe or maybe does not come up as much as often as, as it used to. But I, I've still been at births where it says it on the birth plan, she's had the conversation and without asking, grab, they just grab the scissors. And so I know some of that's probably routine if maybe that's what they're used to doing or whatever. But I think the question that they're trying to get across or what the, what we're wanting to know is what does that look like? What does true consent look like? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will tell you that the situation you described is what true consent absolutely does not look like, right? If someone yeah. <laughs> says, I, I don't want something and then you do it to them, that's actually um, a form of battery, 
right? That's not allowed. Uh, at least in this country, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do something to someone if they tell you not to. So that would be a very bad situation. What I would say is the idea of consent and it, it takes the form of different ways, whether it's verbal, whether you're signing a paper, but that's sort of irrelevant. The idea of what consent is, is basically in regards to medicine is the do- when the doctor is going to do something or give something or, you know, whether it's an operation, a medication, uh, admission to the hospital, whatever it is to a patient that she understands what is happening, understands what her options are and agrees to what's going on. Right. That's ex- that's that's essentially what it is. Now, how do you get to that point? Well, there's different ways. Sometimes it's just a conversation. Say, hey, you know, this is what I think. This is what I think we're going to do. Let's do this. And she says, great. That's consent. Now, there are legal forms that can accompany that. Sometimes it's a specific consent, like for an operation. And sometimes um, it's just a verbal consent because you had a written consent before. But the idea is that they, they should be on board with what's happening, meaning no one should have something done to them without them approving it. That is consent. Now, informed consent is a little more complicated because in order to have true informed consent, a woman has to be informed, meaning know what all of her options are, what are the risks, what are the benefits, what are the alternatives of every single thing. The reason it's hard is because sometimes it's impossible to be truly informed. I mean, you know, some of these things are very complicated and, you know, most women who are having babies didn't go to medical school and, you know, it's, and it's so it's hard to maybe really understand everything about these decisions. And that's where it's, it's the onus of the doctor to try to present it in a way that is understandable, digestible, that she can basically help with that decision. And that's what it, that's what consent should look like. And that's what it is. Thank you for touching on both of those because informed consent is kind of our soapbox. Um, and it, it is a conversation though. And like you said, we don't have all the information. And so being able to ask good questions and trust the person that you're speaking to, to be able to give you proper information about benefits and risks is huge. You know, it's, it's, it's one of these things that is a, it's a very, it's a delicate balance because on the one hand, Informed consent is obviously the ideal. The best situation you could have is where the the doctor and the patient, you know, are discussing a decision. They both understand all the pros and cons, and she's able to participate in the decision and decide what's best for her after hearing all the advice from the doctor. That's obviously the ideal, but it can be difficult to do, number one, because there is frequently an information gap between them or a knowledge gap between them. That's one, you know, I mean, the, the doctor is going to know more about the topic than the woman. On the flip side, she's going to know more about herself than the doctor is going to know about her. So they're both coming from a disadvantage. And the other problem is, and I find this sometimes with um, younger doctors, is this appropriate push for informed consent. What happens sometimes is the doctor is now afraid to give an opinion and it can go overboard. So for example, I'll be you know teaching and I'll be meeting with the medical students or the residents and I'll say, what do you think we should do in this situation? And the residents say, oh, we could do A, we could do B, we could do C. And I'm like, yeah, I know what the options are. What do you think we should do? And they can't decide because they're Mm. so used to just like, and if I drop something on a patient's lap and say, Oh, do you want this operation or this operation? Most of the time she'd be like, well, what are you asking me for? Like, what do I know? You know, like, well, what didn't, didn't you train to like come up with this? It's almost as if you're, if my plumber said to me, should I use, you know, a right angle uh, pipe or a 45 degree angle pipe? I mean, I have no idea what's going to work. Like you, (laughs) like you tell me like you're the plumber. So it's a balance between, you know, maintaining this idea of professionalism that you have skills, you have training, you have expertise, and someone is asking you for help and for advice and to guide them and to sort of, you know, provide that. But at the same time, to explain what are the options, right? There are sometimes many reasonable options and to be able to say, okay, this is one option that's reasonable. Here's another, here's a third. This is why you might choose this one. This is why you might choose this one. This is why you might choose this one. Here's the upsides, the downsides. And then that's how it should go play out. And if she says, which is the best one? Well, it depends on the circumstances. Sometimes there really yeah. is what I think a best one. And sometimes 
there isn't a best one. A classic one is is like VBAC. So a lot of women, you know, with VBAC, they had one prior C-section and they're deciding whether to deliver vaginally or have a C-section next time. For most women, there are exceptions. For most women, from a medical, pure medical perspective, it isn't clear which one is better because ultimately a C-section is safe for her and the baby. There's a downside in terms of the recovery and the pain in this, but it, it's safe. And a vaginal delivery is going to be safe for her and the baby. And there is a downside. There's some risk, there's some risk. So for most women, I'm going to tell them I'm perfectly comfortable with either decision because I think they're both reasonable. They're both safe. And you may prefer a VBAC because, you know, you want to deliver vaginally or you want to have many more kids, whatever it is. Or you may prefer a C-section because you don't want the uncertainty. You don't want to take any risk of the uterine rupture. Fine. And those are both perfectly okay. And in that situation, if she says, which is better, it's hard for me to even answer that. I'll say, I think they're, they're both fine. What do you want? And it'll sort of go back at her. But that's, that's not the same for other decisions where clearly I think there's one that's much safer than the other one. And so it depends on the situation and how we present these to patients, whether it's really a, a, in their hands to make a, a good decision or whether one is so much better than the other that it, it's almost hard for me to give the other one as an option because I think it's so crazy. I think, again, that's where that no like trust factor comes back because if I have a provider who I know, like, and trust and they lay out all my options for me, I then feel confident saying, okay, those all sound good. You know me well. And so out of those options, which do you feel like would be the best one for me? And, um, and then be willing to listen to what they have to say, right? Or, you know, be willing to ask which one of these would you do if it were your wife or your daughter and be willing to listen to what they say if that no like and trust factor is there. Um, last question that we'll have you field here from our listeners. Um, one of the things that they have a hard time with is really understanding when they can say no to a recommended intervention. Um, how can you help our listeners get a true read on, you know, which interventions are necessary, which are unnecessary? I know it's, this is a very general question. Uh-huh. It's a case by case thing, but how can they get a true read on the use of an intervention during pregnancy or birth? Yeah, it, it's a tough question. It's not a tough question to answer, but it, it, it is a, it's a difficult question in general. The, the sh- a woman can always say no there is basically no situation where she can't say no, right? Because it's ultimately her body. We cannot do things to people without, again, their consent, their approval. So she's allowed to say no. And if she says no, it cannot be done to her unless like a court, you know, deems like whatever, something crazy, you know, like some crazy situation, but basically never. The question is when should she say no? And I think that that's a harder one. I think that there isn't one way to look at this. I think that if there's something that she feels is really not appropriate or just seems to be very too aggressive or not aggressive enough or whatever it is, I think there's a situation where she can speak up and say like, again, you want to try to do it in a way that's respectful, that's collaborative. And to say something like, I don't really understand why. Can you help explain that to me? Or can we discuss that further? Or you know something in that lines is sort of the assumption is that it should start with the assumption that the person making the recommendation is trying to do the best for you, right? They're trying to do what they think is best. And if it's something that you feel is uh, not in line with what you want to try to talk about that more. But again, the best way to be in that situation is to enter the relationship or to have a relationship with a doctor that's already been built on trust. It's difficult if you just show up and some random doctor's there. You have no idea who he or she is. They don't know you. You don't know them. You know nothing about it. That's a hard situation to sort of build trust in a quick um, way. But if you have the opportunity to build trust over time, then it's very easy. You just say, hey, let's like, let's talk about it. Or they were already have talked about it when they mentioned it to you. You know, I don't walk into a room and just say, hey, we're going to do this and then walk out. That would just that's just, it's just, I mean, people do that, but that's not really how it's supposed to be. And so I'll, I'll talk yeah. to them and I know her, she knows me. We're talking like it's, 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 it's not like we're best friends, but we have a rapport. We, we, we sort of know who the other is. I, we get each other in that sense. And if you get the other person, it's a very easy conversation. And so the only time it becomes difficult and I'll tell this to people, I'll say, it's clear to me, you don't trust me. 
you don't value what I'm bringing to the table here. And that's a very difficult situation to navigate. And I really, it's best if we're not in this situation to begin with, because how could you, how could I take care of someone who doesn't trust me? And why would anyone want to be taken care of by someone who they don't trust? That's a, it's a, that's yeah, a very yeah. terrible situation to be in for both people. It's, it's bad for the patient. Yeah. It's bad for the doctor. Everyone doesn't want to be in that situation. And it's, it's, again, sometimes you don't have that option. And I would say if, if you're in a situation where it's a new doctor who you don't know, or it's a you know type of hospital where the doctor delivers you is not someone takes care of you during pregnancy, really try to focus on the early part of labor when you come in, not so much on the details, but just focus on the personality. Try to build a rapport, try to build trust, try to have a conversation. Who is this person? Where do they come from? Talk about things just very conversationally and, and try to develop a relationship in, in a short amount of time so that trust is built as quickly as possible. And I think that that's going to relieve some of these potential conflicts later on in labor. I don't think you could have said that any better. Like communication is key and treating people with respect is so crucial. That's something that um, I know Courtney and I did an entire lesson over is like, honestly, just how to treat people kindly when you walk into that space, because we talked about like the nurses or, you know, they come from families and they work long hours. Same with the doctors. You guys, you work these hours and you're up in the middle of the night and you have to go home to families that need you and children that need you. And like, you're a person too. And so I, I think that's so important to just make it human again. It's so, yeah, I, I have so many patients who, you know, th this idea that making the connection people, again, I'm not saying people should like just bring gifts to their doctors, but someone who, you know, no, I mean, but like if, if I'm there and it's five in the morning and, you know, I'm there all night and, you know, someone's in labor and her, or, you know, her husband says, Hey, I'm going to go get coffee. Can I get you a coffee? And I usually say, I usually yeah. say no, because I, I've got access in this app, but like, that's kind. And I'd be like, thank you so much. I really appreciate you thinking of me, but I'm good. And on the flip side, yeah. I'll sometimes say that to patients, like I'm going to get something to eat from the cafeteria. Do you want something? And it's just that these are so simple. These are the, and there's so, everyone knows it in their mind that it means something, but people sometimes forget the same thing with the nurses, people who show up and do something kind for the nurse, even simple, like, Hey, thank you so much for taking care of me. They'll, it just changes the whole tenor of the relationship. Or if, if the doctor comes in and says to the patient, do you know if you're having a boy or a girl? Do you have any kids at home? Who's taking care of them? What do they think about this? What And you sort of, you know, try to connect on a personal level, whatever it might be. You know, what are you watching on TV? What are you reading? You know, just something to make it a connection. Yeah. It's so much easier to talk about the more difficult things later on, potentially, because you just yeah, get a that, sense. And that's, yeah. that's why we're, no, that's why it's so big to like, we, we, like, I think our number one thing is find a good supportive provider. Like that's the top of the list before you take a birth course, before you do anything else, you have to find somebody that you trust. Cause otherwise I feel like it's like you get pulled over by a cop and you're like, stick straight. Yeah. You, know, you don't know. You know what I mean? Like that, that relationship, you're like, oh, dang, instead of it being this like comfortable, <laughs> yeah, you know, because I mean, in a sense, like, you, you know, walking into birth, like you guys are skilled, the doctor is skilled. And so there is kind of that like pedestal approach where it feels like even though it's your body, you feel like somebody else is going to dictate some things over it because they have this knowledge. And so, yeah, if you have, if you can bring it down and be like, yeah, but we're both people and we both want the same thing here, then. It's yeah. And I think also a lot of it is, is it's difficult for people in all situations, but usually everyone's very focused on the moment, right? So I'm here, I'm in labor, I'm having a baby. It's today. It's what's going to be. But I think it also is very helpful in, in all these situations to, to really think big picture right? The, the birth, which is an unbelievable process and experience. And as you said, it's life-changing, but it's only one moment in that baby's lifetime and in your family's lifetime. And there's years and years and years and years and years of moments that are going to, you know, also happen. And I think it's important sometimes for people to have perspective on what's going on. And so when I, you know, when I talk to you about their birth plans and this, and I say, you know, this is great. We're going to try this. This is fantastic. And I say like, but just realize if it doesn't work out exactly this way for whatever reason, it's okay, right? It's not, you know, there's, we, we don't have control over everything in the world. And I always tell them, you think it's bad now, wait till they're born. Then you have no control. 
I mean, it's just, no, it's just that's the life of having children that you, you try to control what's going to happen in their lives. Not in a bad way. You know, you want them to do this. You want them to be healthy. You want them to be happy. You want them to be kind. You want them to be generous. You want all these things to happen, but we don't have control. There's so much that is out of our control and we spend so much of our time just trying to, you know, adapt to the new thing. I mean, look at COVID. It just, attack the earth right. out of nowhere. And so we're all, <laughs> you know, it's like Mars attacks and we're, and we're all in a new reality and who could have predicted this, but that's what life is like. It's like that for every person, for every family, for every community, for every country. And so the birth is the same way. It's, it's great to be knowledgeable and to have preferences and to understand what you want and to have a vision and to have a dream, but also take a step back and say, listen, you know, big picture, healthy mom, healthy baby. We want to walk out of this hospital. Okay. Have a long life together, you know, as a family, which is the biggest goal. And a lot of these things, not to hyper-focus on them, you know, not to, it's not, these things are not the biggest decisions that are going to be made in your life or your baby's life. It's just one thing that you want to try to optimize, but you know, to have a sense of humor, try to be laid back about this, you know, really. And it, it's just important because yeah. it's a perspective on it. People who are you know, if the, if the, again, I, I, I deal with women all day who are delivering babies and I get it. It's a big, big deal for someone who's trying to deliver vaginally. If it switches to a C-section, it is. And I, I don't minimize that, but three years later, it shouldn't matter. If it does matter, it was traumatic and it, it was traumatic for a reason. Either the doctor didn't do a good job or her perspective was a little bit off that she put too much into that. And it's, it's, it's just important to have this perspective. I just think in life in general, otherwise the, the your, your whole, the childhood is going to be a, so scary every day because everything changes on a moment's notice. Well, Nate, those are words of wisdom and we are so grateful for having you on. We want our listeners to be able to find you, find your podcast. So tell them where they can find you and maybe, you know, the range of topics you cover. Cause I love that you're not specific to pregnancy and birth. It's kind of a whole wide range of women's health. And so tell us where yeah, can well, we right find now you? you can find me parked on 110th somewhere between. No, but uh, <laughs> I, I won't be here for long. I'm going to pick up my daughter. I'm going to go home for the weekend. But uh, so I, I practice <laughs> in New York City. If you're looking for me as a physician, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in Upper East Side of Manhattan. Our practice website is uh, mfmnyc.com, which is maternal fetal medicine, nyc.com. Uh, you can find me, see what I look like. I'm sorry, I'm not better looking. And then in terms of just information for our podcast, so we started the podcast uh, in April of 2020. It's been awesome. I love it. We do about two a week. The name of the podcast is called Healthful Woman. That's like the word health with a F-U-L at the end and woman in the singular, W-O-M-A-N. Uh, we have a website, healthfulwoman.com. We're on wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud. Uh, it's free, whatever, sign up. We're trying to be very um, holistic in a sense. So a lot of our podcasts are about pregnancy and delivery. Uh, a lot are about general gynecology, women's health, menopause, wellness, um, breastfeeding, yoga, everything. I bring on guests and we keep it light. And I really, really just believe that there needs to be good information for women, for people, obviously, as you know, not you know men as well, but I focus on women's health, and uh, and yeah, and check it out. I I am confident that the listeners of your podcast will like my podcast, and the listeners of my podcast will like your podcast. <laughs> it's just I, I I've I've listened to them both, and I think that there's a lot of overlap <laughs> in philosophy, even though we come from very different uh, angles. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, I agree. And you guys, I hope you took more away from this. Other than the fact that you can have sushi, have caffeine, and dye your hair <laughs> that's in pregnancy. Enough. That's plenty. This, uh, this interview. Uh, I, you don't say I did a podcast um, with, with Emily Oster, who wrote a book uh, called Expecting Better, which, by the way, is the best prenatal pregnancy book out there, for sure. All your listeners should get it. I don't get royalties. It's just my favorite book. So I had a podcast with her, <laughs> and I was telling her that, like, in, in New York City, because a lot of people eat sushi out here, when I tell women that they can eat sushi, they are more shocked than if I were to tell them they can like inject heroin and do crack. You know, it's, it's like, unbelievable. <laughs> like I, I, when I say like, you know, you can eat sushi, they're like, what, 
what? They're like floored. They can't believe it. Like that anyone would allow them to do that. But I don't know. It's that's just how it is. Go figure. <laughs> I love it. So there you go. And hopefully you found some other golden nuggets in this interview along the way. Thank you so much for being on here. We are so grateful for you and this for your great. time. And remember that we will always link to everything that we talk about here within the podcast notes. So you will be able to go directly to his podcast, to the website, um, and look for anything else that we talked about here. www.myessentialbirth slash podcast. Awesome. This is great. Thank you so much, right, guys. Folks. I really appreciate it. All right, mamas. We will be back with more tips and advice soon. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe so that you get notifications first about new episodes. And don't forget to head over to myessentialbirth.com for more information on the birth course and to join our online community serving pregnant mamas just like you.